Hey friends, Chaz here. Thanks for joining us today. Before we jumped into the episode, I wanted to remind you that if you're listening before Monday, September 24th, it's not too late for you to jump into Scott's class on Paul's pastoral theology. This is an episode that we did last week on um, some of the recent work that Scott has done about what Paul understood the pastoral role to be and how he carried it out in his own life and ministry. So Scott's really done some great work on this, and we wanted to open up the opportunity for all of our listening audience to be able to participate in this through being an auditor or maybe even want to enroll to be a student, whatever works for you. I'd love to be able to help you uh, figure out what that looks like and what what might be a best fit if you're interested in this class. So please don't hesitate to email me at crobbins at seminary.edu. That is C-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at seminary.edu. I'd love to answer any questions that you have or get you connected with our admissions office to get signed up for this class. Also, want to let you know, if you're kind of on the fence and, and not sure you want to fully commit, we will let you in and let you try the first class. And if you want to commit full-time to it and, and pay the auditing expense and, and all of that, you can do so. And if it's not what you thought, then you can enjoy the first class for free on us. So um, again, let me know with all of that if you're interested, and I will get you hooked up. So without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have the first part of Scott's keynote address to the Brethren in Christ General Assembly on following Christ. Uh, six, seven, eight months ago, maybe nine months ago, uh, Leadership Council was talking about our, our theme for this General Assembly, and the no love follow Jesus was uh, what emerged from that. And so we thought about the three evenings and wondered uh, who might we have speak on each of those evenings. And when we were talking about following Jesus, uh, the name of Scott McKnight, who is not a part of our Brethren in Christ family, although he's a part of the family that we, the Brethren in Christ, are a part of the family of, the family of God, his name came up. Many of you will know of Scott and his writings. He's a prolific writer, and he's written a lot, and a lot about following Jesus. And one of his publications of some years ago, The Jesus Creed, is uh, particularly well-known in this area. And so I was tasked with following up and contacting Scott, uh, who I had met one time a number of years ago, but just a very casual two-second conversation, so we didn't know each other in any way. And I was tasked with asking would he be available to come, so I I got an email address, I emailed him, and uh, he was not available initially because he was supposed to be in Denmark, is your next place of call, and he was going to some pastor's conference in Denmark to be a speaker, and so I got the information back, and I think I was about to email LC members and say, Scott McKnight is not available. And then he emailed again and said, the pastor's conference in Denmark has shifted their dates. And so I am available, but he was just available for this one-day window because when he leaves us 
Tomorrow morning, early flight back to Chicago. Within a day or so, he's on a flight to Denmark, and then he comes back from there, and he's on a flight, I think, to the West Coast for another conference or meeting. And so it just so happened that the day that we were asking him to come just opened up, and we were delighted that he graciously agreed to, to pack his schedule, perhaps fuller than he would like it to be, um, so that he could be with us today. When his, his flight schedule arrived, um, we were happy to see that he was coming early enough to give us a free seminar in the afternoon, just a, an optional extra. The disappointing thing was he arrived at the kickoff for the World Cup final time, and I had to be at the airport to pick him up, and so I <laughs> couldn't get to see the game. England weren't playing anyway, so it really didn't matter. But... Um, but I, I, I tried to talk soccer with him, and he kept trying to switch it to baseball all day, which just wasn't... Apparently the Cubs were playing, and, and some other team lost that he was glad they lost or were losing some brewing team or something like that. I'm not quite sure who they are. But I've had a great day just getting to know Scott. Uh, we spent a few hours together just uh, sharing and catching up and discovered a number of places and people that we actually had in common, and, and it's just been a great day. And I've been blessed just spending time with him. And those of us who were here this afternoon enjoyed his presentation on the, the primary task of a pastor, nurturing a culture of Christoformity, people conforming to be Christ-like, and that's what he presented on this afternoon. And so tonight, he's going to speak on this final part of our, our series of following Jesus. And I said to him, you can take it any way you, you wish to take it. We're just glad that you're here. So would you please welcome and thank Scott McKnight for joining us tonight. I have really enjoyed Alan's wonderful Pennsylvania accent. Soccer is played once every four years or three years when the World Cup, but baseball's played every day. <laughs> it's the grace of faithfulness that we like to emphasize. <laughs> and I want to thank the Pittsburgh Pirates for beating the Milwaukee Brewers so the Cubs could be two and a half games in first place. No, go Cubs. Go Cubs. My son is the assistant scouting director for the Cubs, so don't say anything bad. In my Bible, there are imprecatory prayers, and I'm not afraid to use them. I want to thank Alan for, uh, for the kind invitation uh, to come here, and uh, we went back and forth on a number of things, and so I want to thank you for hosting me. It's been really good. I love to be with Anabaptists. Uh, when I was in high school, some of my best friends were Mennonites, and uh, they were involved in a high school Bible study that we started. And uh, from that point on, I, I knew a little bit. I didn't know what the word Anabaptist meant. We were Baptists, and we didn't need any Annas connected to us. <laughs> we were the real thing, you know? not knowing that Anabaptists were before Baptists, but that didn't bother us. We outnumbered those Mennonites. And then when I was in seminary, I discovered Ronald Sider, 
and he, he really rocked my world. And I read, I've read most of it, Ronald Sider's books throughout the years. I also discovered John Howard Yoder and discovered other things about him later. Uh, but his ideas were very influential at a critical moment in my life. And then uh, I read Donald Craybill and various Mennonite writers and Anabaptist writers. And uh, I'm an Anabaptist to the core, though I'm not in an Anabaptist church. And there are some things that I diverge with you from, but they don't matter because we are brethren in Christ. <laughs> we're brethren and sistren. thought I'd add that. <laughs> but my task is to talk about uh, the word follow. So I'd like to begin with Jesus' call to follow, and then I want to explore with you uh, the, uh, the... I think what happens is that we say, we want to follow Jesus, so we study the Sermon on the Mount, and, and then we try to apply all those teachings, and they're almost impossible. No one wakes up in the morning for encouragement by reading the Sermon on the Mount. But we, we get sort of locked into a, a model where the teachings of Jesus become Torah or law. And um, I wanted to explore Jesus' calling to follow him, but to watch, uh, depending on how much time we have, I grew up Baptist, and we didn't have clocks in our church. So some sermons went for hours. And uh, I had a friend, actually, who, who would walk forward as soon as the invitation came with just as I am because he knew he'd get out before everybody else. <laughs> it's the truth. But I want to explore how various apostles understood what it meant to follow Jesus because they show the creative dynamic of what it means to follow Jesus. They don't turn the teachings of Jesus into Torah or law. They turn it into a creative imagination and exploration of what it means to follow Jesus in a different kind of world. And it really is pretty amazing to watch the apostles work. But let's start with Jesus in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus calls people to follow. And I don't mind reading the Bible. I tell my seminary students at Northern Seminary that the most authoritative moment on Sunday morning is when Scripture is read, not when it's preached. It's downhill when the sermon comes up, <laughs> which is encouraging to them. <laughs> Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, this is Mark 8, 31, and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, or the Torah, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Now I'm going to skip ahead because what Peter said is just stupid, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> That's the point, is that he didn't get it. So Jesus said, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross, and Luke adds, daily, and follow me. Here's a commentary on that statement. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. 
But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. He asks a question, because Jesus likes to ask questions. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And then he makes a final powerful comment. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, Jesus announces that he's going to die. We call these, in biblical studies, the passion predictions. What is sometimes not noticed is that after each one of these times that Jesus says, I am going to die, and I don't think they heard that he was going to be raised uh, in, a, in conjunction with that, because most of them, like Peter, were rather stunned by the absolute impossibility of Messiahs being crucified. Three times Jesus announces that he will die, and following that, all three times, he calls people to discipleship to follow him. With this big idea that whatever is Jesus is like, his followers are to be like. Because following Jesus means being a follower of Jesus. It's pretty profound, isn't it? If this is the way Jesus is going toward the cross, and we are going to follow him, we too go to the cross. So following Jesus, discipleship, the Christian life, is based upon what Jesus is like. Theologically, we say it this way. Christology shapes ecclesiology, or Christology shapes the Christian life. That is, whatever Jesus is like determines what following Jesus is like. And if he is like the cross, then following Jesus is like the cross. One scholar said that there are three elements to following Jesus. There's a call. He calls people, follow me. There is a commitment, which is the response of the human being to the call of Jesus. And then there is the cost. Because in following Jesus, you pay the cost of following him. Whoever follows me, Jesus says, must deny themselves and take up the cross. That's the cost of following Jesus. Which leads me to my favorite theologian, who I consider an Anabaptist, but he would not. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. All right? In his famous book, translated originally and titled originally, The Cost of Discipleship, which in German was called Nachfolge, or discipleship, not the cost of discipleship, Reginald H. Fuller, Reginald H. Fuller translated a famous line of Bonhoeffer which has become poetic in our imagination. When Jesus bids a man come, he bids him come and die. Fuller's statement is actually better than Bonhoeffer's. Bonhoeffer's statement said, Jeder ruf Jesu führt zu den Tod. Every call of Jesus leads to death. Not so poetic and clever, but it's far more potent 
Every call of Jesus leads to death. That's the point. He calls us to die to ourselves in order to follow him. Bonhoeffer, of course, paid the ultimate price. And I consider him to be one of the great theologians of the 20th century because of the life he lived or the death he lived, not just for the teachings that he gave us. He paid the price because in America, one summer, studying at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, he was unable to rest because of the unrest in Germany. And he told a famous theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr that he said, I have to make a decision to save the church and destroy Germany or destroy the church and save Germany. I will return. And we know what he did. He gave his life in a redemptive way. He even understood himself as a versunentot, a vicarious death for the sake of the church in Germany. He paid the price. Many Christians have paid that price, that cost of giving their life. But it isn't simply martyrdom or death for following Jesus. It is death to the self. What about us? We don't have to be heroic. We don't have to be martyrs in order to die to the self and to follow Jesus. We have to die to the self, and that's the death that Jesus calls us to die. Sometimes that death will lead to martyrdom, but other times it leads to a change of career. It leads to a complete surprise in vocation. I grew up in a locker room. My father was a coach, and my dream was to become an Olympic athlete. Now, you don't look at me now and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I think of you. Uh, but I, I was a decathlete and a high jumper, so I was in track and field, which is kind of a weird sport for many people. That's, that's once every four years, like the World Cup, like soccer. That's two. That's two. But you gave me a hard time about baseball, God's game. And I was planning on being, I was going to go to a university as a decathlete in a track, uh, on a track scholarship when the Lord called me. And I was at a summer camp when I was 17 years old, and I was deeply influenced by a missionary from Austria named Dwayne Bixel, who was a Mennonite. And um, he spoke to me, and I gave my career or life to Jesus. And from that point on, all I ever wanted to do was study the Bible and teach the Bible. And so from that point on, that's what I've done. And here I am, 64, and it's been a pretty good life. I felt like I died at that time. But what I didn't know is the, is the death I died was the life I was given. And that's what many of us have done in our life. We've given up careers. We've given up choices. We've given up opportunities because we know the Lord has called us. So Jesus' call is not simply heroic, but it is to die to self and to live for Christ, however he calls us. And I'd like to sample how different apostles understood this dying to self life. 
I'll start with Paul. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul shows that following Jesus, or what I call often Christoformity, or being formed to the image of Christ, transforms relationships. Now, I'm only going to make suggestions and not rules and spell it all out. I'm not that kind of teacher. I'm a theologian type. You know, I give you more ideas and try to create more disturbance in your head than solutions. (laughs) Pastors can do that sort of thing. But Paul encounters some real tensions in the church at Philippi, a wonderful Roman colony, and Paul's solution is an amazing description of Jesus. Therefore, he says, if you have any encouragement, Philippians 2, 1, from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Now, this is a setup rhetorically because this is what Paul's concerned about. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, because they're not like-minded. Having the same love, because they don't have that love. Being one in the Spirit, because they don't have one Spirit and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, which is what they're doing, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is a really difficult statement to make. It's, it's, I should say it this way. C.S. Lewis once said, forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And, and looking to the interests of others is such a splendid virtue until it's the person you don't want to think like that about, right? Your neighbor or someone in your church or in your small group and you hope uh, that they transfer to a different Brethren in Christ church <laughs> or they go Baptist or something like that. Just fall off the deep end. So, this is a very difficult teaching because you can sit here and think right now of those who you know this is about in your life. We all have people like this. In your relationships with one another, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So here we go. Following Jesus means to follow Jesus right into a difficult relationship. And now what does it look like? It looks like Jesus when you do this. Here's what he says. Who, being in the very nature God, and it can be translated, because he was in the very being God, and because this is what God is like, first, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, to play power games, to play privilege, to play power, to play status, to play hierarchy, to play age, to play money, to play education. Does that cover enough? To play politics. He said no. Rather, instead of doing that, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself 
and became, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, the point is this. Because he was God, he did not choose to use his own power and status for his own advantage. He chose instead to give himself redemptively for others. In the middle of a difficult relationship, to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus is to ask, how can I make this person's life redemptive? How can I make this person's life redemptive? Challenging question for all of us following Christ. Hope you've been encouraged and blessed by the first part of Scott's keynote address here. Um, Look forward to hopefully have you next week as we continue his talk for the second part of it next week. But wanted to remind you before we go that if you want to... if you're interested at all in that Paul class, Paul's Pastoral Theology, please email me at crobbins at seminary.edu. I'd love to be able to chat with you. Thanks so much for joining. Hope you have a wonderful day and look forward to have you next time as we continue the conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Mm-hmm.